You could read a press release about this, but when you actually sit down and you have a conversation over tea or a cup of coffee or over dinner, it becomes something that is then very memorable. And I just want to encourage folks to start these conversations because these are the very conversations that kind of keep you going in the long run because there are other human beings in every corner of the earth, people of conscience who are trying to make a difference. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Our regular host, Mike Hancocks, is off today. We are continuing our series of episodes leading up to the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which will be held in San Francisco from February 1st through 3rd. New Partners is the nation's largest smart growth and sustainability event. The program will feature a range of topics, including our topic for today, Adapting to a Changing Climate. You won't want to miss the conference, so register now at newpartners.org. Our guests today are Jonathan Parfrey, Executive Director of Climate Resolve, and Ellie Cohen, President and CEO of Point Blue Conservation Science. They both just returned from the UN Climate Change Conference, known as the Conference of Parties, or COP23, and are joining us to share their experience. Leading up to the conference, we did a podcast titled Bond Chance, featuring Alden Meyer, Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden gave us a great background on the conference and how the United States leadership has shifted between the Bush and Obama's administration, and now under Trump. If you haven't listened to the podcast, I encourage you to do so. Before we dive in, I'll share some background on our speakers. Jonathan Parfrey served as a commissioner at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power before founding Climate Resolve. He is the immediate past president of the Los Angeles League of Conservation Voters. He is a founder and vice chair of CEQUAVIA, the founder of the Los Angeles Regional Collaborative for Climate Action and Sustainability, and a chair and founder of the statewide Alliance of Regional Collaboratives for Climate Adaptation. Ellie Cohen, in addition to leading Point Blue, serves on the California Conservation Cooperative. She's an invited member of the San Francisco Bay Area's Resilient by Design Research Advisory Committee and co-founder of the Bay Area Ecosystems Climate Change Consortium. Ellie was honored with the Bay Nature 2012 Environmental Hero Award for her climate change leadership and in 2009 was named one of 100 women taking the lead to save our planet. Thank you both for joining us and welcome back from Bonn. So the conference this year was focused on implementation of the Paris Climate Accord. Jonathan, given the Trump administration's withdrawal of the U.S. from the Climate Accord, what was the atmosphere like for Americans in Bonn? Thanks, Kate, for this opportunity. I got to tell you, this was my first time participating in a United Nations climate conference. COP23 was really special for me. 
I've been working on climate change issues for a long time, and it's the first time to be there. I wanted to first paint a little bit of a picture of what it actually felt like to be there. Uh, first of all, the conference grounds were part of a United Nations building in a neighboring park just outside of the city of Bonn, Germany. And the first thing I want to make notice of is that they have great public transit in Germany. It was so easy to take a regional train or uh, even a local subway if you wanted to go into the town of Bonn from the conference grounds. It, in a little city like Bonn, 300,000 people had like six or seven or eight different uh, subway lines within that relatively uh, small city by American standards. And so it was really great, easy to get around. They also had bike share on the grounds. And so if you were to walk it from one side of the grounds to the other, it would take about 50 minutes because there's the negotiating zone, which was called the Bula zone, that required a certain certification and badges to be able to get access to that area. And then they had something that they called the bond zone, where it also required certification and but it was the bond zone was more of the not for the negotiation per se, but more for the international climate conference. And that's where uh, different nations had pavilions. It's where a group like ICLE held its conference area. And there were most of the talks that I attended were in that bond zone that was not part of the formal negotiations. So being an American there, was not a problem at all. In fact, I didn't even for a, a second feel as if there was any judgment related to Americans participating in this conference. I think everyone realized if there were Americans there, they were part of the NGOs that actually want to uh, stick to the Paris Accords and people who were very interested in uh, moving a, a climate action agenda. So actually, the, the mood was very favorable. And I was just there the first week, but I can tell you for the first week, every door was open. There was a great conviviality. There was a really strong spirit, especially among the host nation, which was Fiji, of welcoming uh, all people throughout the world. And it was such a nice event that uh, I know for at least for myself, I'd like to participate in future years and happily represent California and Los Angeles at that forum. That's great to hear that there was such a positive reception of the, the leaders who were able to come in and stand up for the progress that we are making in America. But we do know that the lack of federal leadership has, has created a vacuum and increased the need for leadership at different levels. The McKinsey Institute recently released a report called Focus Acceleration, which found that 20% of the needed action to fight climate change can be accomplished by cities alone. So, Ellie, I'm wondering how much attention was focused on the role that subnational or non-state actors can play? Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for having me on. It, I think there was quite a bit of attention on cities and states. I think that happened in part because of the lack of a positive presence from the Trump administration. In essence, there were two U.S. delegations there. There was a State Department delegation that was pretty quiet most of the time, except for the session they presented on what they called clean fossil fuels that was protested by a group of singers and then uh, left the room empty for them. 
But other than that, they were pretty behind the scenes. The real U.S. presence was the alternative U.S. Climate Action Center that focused on America's pledge that was organized by Governor Jerry Brown with uh, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg and others. They represented over 2,500 cities, states, and businesses that together make up one-third of the U.S. economy, which equals the third largest economy in the world, with a commitment to make progress for the United States towards the greenhouse gas emissions reductions goal that was set in the Paris Accord. It was very inspiring to be a part of that. And I've met people from all over the world and similar to Jonathan, had an amazing experience, would love and look forward to going there again. But every time I introduced myself, I introduced myself as being from California and people looked at me as though I had just said I came from Jerusalem or Mecca. They were really admiring California for being a leader in cities, in nature-based solutions, in many different aspects of addressing energy to have a healthy and safe climate for our future. Great. Thanks, Ellen. I think it's very powerful to see these agreements, whether it's the Paris Accord or the agreements you were mentioning. There's a under two MOU. There's a we're still in campaign. It's great to see businesses, cities, governors all stepping up to show that we're going to continue to make progress on climate change. But I do wonder, you know, all of this is only meaningful in so much as we're able to see results on the ground and and really begin to see some some major actions. So Jonathan, I'm wondering in your opinion, what is it going to take for us to go from commitment to action? What do we do between now and the next COP in Poland to ensure that we're seeing some results? Well, I, ju- I just want to concur with what Ellie was saying in that there was a very strong subnational presence at the COP, at the U.S. Climate Action Center, which, by the way, was this inflatable building I think Ellie and I were both able to speak there that first day, and you didn't need a badge or credentials to get into this building, but this big white inflatable building, it really did look like a a liberal bubble in my estimation, and it was kind of funny. But uh, jokes aside, I think it's the subnationals that are really going to help us make a difference on the international scene. The leadership out of California is very notable. The times I was able to spend with some of the German states. I I was in a session with uh, Lower Saxony and Northern Westphalia, and they have their own climate collaboratives. And to hear their conversations, just absolutely fascinating. They, They have many of the same challenges that we have here in California. And to just be able to hear what they're going through, even where they have this exceptional national commitment to these climate goals, and there's a role that the the nation, their Congress, the Bundesrat can can do for those German states in helping to guide them in the same way the state of California can put mandates on uh, local cities and counties and regions within California, that kind of collaborative work between a a larger government and a a local government is really inspiring. So my sense of where progress is going to take place is that states like California, states in, in Germany and elsewhere can move ahead on their climate goals. And I, I think 
there's going to be something along the lines of a competitive advantage among those states that are climate resilient, those states that are reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, that there's going to be rewards for being an early adopter of the of the Paris Accords rather than a late adopter of the Paris Accords. And I think that in turn might be the the driver ultimately to get the rest of the United States uh, engaged and the rest of the world quite candidly, it seems to me, is moving ahead pretty aggressively on their climate goals. They're taking it very seriously. Great to see leadership from nations like India and, and China that in the past had, had actually been uh, some of the holdouts on the on climate action when the U.S. was one of the one of the leaders, and now the tables have turned, and so you have some of these developing nations that are very proudly uh, moving into uh, low and no carbon technologies, accelerating their adoption, and it, in California is uh, keeping pace, if not accelerating beyond what they've been able to do, and. The best news in the U.S. is that the local actions are meaningful. Also, I think when we act locally, Kate, uh, what it does is that it provides real tangible evidence to people in our communities that they're part of this climate action uh, narrative, that they're part of the solution, and that they can see some tangible results from that action, whether that is the visible signs of uh, wind turbines or or solar power, or it's the restoration of wetlands, it's the good management of our of our soils and working lands, or it's uh, resilience in the form of uh, the adoption of cool roofs and cool streets. Those types of things that people can tangibly see that they're making a real difference is what is going to manifest locally, and so. I think that this focus on the local, this focus on subnational governments is uh, really exciting. And I think that's where we're going to see some, some real progress. I want to share that I was very honored to be able to participate in the Climate Local and Regional Leaders Summit that occurred on the Sunday in the middle of the two weeks of the UN conference, uh, representing the town that I'm from, San Anselmo. I'm on the Sustainability Commission. Being in that group, there were 300 mayors from all over the world, governors and other leaders, in total, a thousand people representing cities and states from around the world. It was so inspiring. There are many cities that are well ahead of their countries in terms of the efforts that they are doing in their cities, the kinds of things that Jonathan just described, with very significant goals to reach zero greenhouse gas emissions within the next 10, 20, 25 years. It was very inspiring. And many cities making the leap now, as Jonathan said, to invest in renewables, investing in building energy efficiency and electric cars and new ways of doing mass transit in smart cities and smart lighting. It was just inspirational to see what's going on. The real challenge, I think, is how we scale it up. And it starts with setting examples, demonstration projects and the cities that are taking the lead in every continent on the planet, and then be able to do it at scale so that we make the difference we need to in the time frame that we have. I have no doubt that we're going to get there based on the kinds of people that I met uh, who were so inspiring. I met a woman who is a mayor in a city in Mozambique, and she has also 
the leader of her regional climate collaborative. And there, when they're looking at climate change, they're also combining that with other um, social justice issues and uh, equity issues very successfully. And they really are on the cutting edge. Even though they were looking to us in California, I think we could look to them as well for their inspiration and leadership. That's great. And I, I certainly agree that I, I think we can get there. And and the reason I'm able to have that sort of optimism with everything happening is because I see inspiring cases throughout our 700 local government members of people really doing innovative things to address this challenge. So, so I agree. And I hope that by involving the community, by having these tangi- tangible examples of cool roofs and, and transit that really works and is convenient for people and sustainable as well, my hope is that we can sustain leadership on climate change so that we don't continue to see these big swings in the pendulum across administrations. So that, you know, clearly we need to have a, a diverse coalition working at every level of government and across sectors to continue to sustain progress. And I think one of the the challenges, at least in my opinion, is that a lot of the climate conversations, in addition to be to being bifurcated across political parties, we're also seeing a split between urban strategies and and conservation or natural resource strategies. So I'm curious, Ellie, how well you you think that those issues were integrated at the conference and what you saw that communities are doing across the the globe to really integrate and come up with solutions that work across urban and rural areas. You started off talking about McKinsey's study and the percentage that cities contribute to greenhouse gas emissions reduction. At this COP23, the 23rd Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework on Climate Change, it was the first time that they agreed to have agriculture be recognized not as just a means of greenhouse gas emissions, but actually as a means of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, sequestering it in soil by the way we manage agricultural lands. So there was a significant focus on that for the first time, which I think uh, some studies that came out just in the past two months show that these nature-based solutions and how we manage lands could contribute as much as 37% of the greenhouse gas emissions reductions needed by 2030 for the Paris goals. Another study showed that roughly 25% of our annual emissions could be offset just by managing croplands differently to sequester carbon. And there are other benefits that go along with that, increasing water holding capacity of the soil, replenishing groundwater, supporting biodiversity, and helping to sustain our local communities and providing food security. So many, many benefits that go along with that. I think that there were a number of other presentations about what they now call negative emissions, which is about how we sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. Most climate scientists today are agreeing that in order to get to a safe climate, we are going to have to not only have a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, but we're going to have to figure out ways to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And part of that will be technological. There were examples of two different places, uh, one in Iceland and one in, I believe, in the United States, where they have actually successfully been able to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it in rocks or underground. However, it's on a tiny scale. 
So again, how we scale these things up is critical, whether it's technological, nature-based solutions, and of course, our greenhouse gas emissions reductions efforts in cities and states. I wanted to just mention real quickly that there were a couple of new resources for cities that were introduced during the two weeks of the UN Conference on Climate Change. One is called the Carbon-Free City Handbook that is put out by the Rocky Mountain Institute. And I want to recommend that to our listeners because they have some wonderful case studies in there of what is working in different cities around the world in a number of different efforts to move towards carbon-free cities. I highly recommend it. The second thing was from the World Bank that is now being used by ICLEI and other organizations, and they're calling it the City Climate Planner. Part of that tool is to actually certify city planners who are responsible for assessing greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Part of that is to ensure that the elected officials recognize the important role that these planners play in helping uh, cities and other entities to achieve our greenhouse gas emissions goals. Great. Thanks for sharing those resources, Ellie. I'll definitely take a look at those. They sound interesting that I'm sure our members would be very pleased to, to see resources like those. Jonathan, I will give you the last word here. What do you? What's your charge coming out of the, the conference? Well, my charge is to task people to attend these conferences, not only the UN conference, but in California, there's the California Adaptation Forum. There's also the National Adaptation Forum. There are other climate conferences. And here's the task is to start having conversations with people. Just become an extrovert, even if you aren't an extrovert, and just start chatting away. Ask people how they're doing. Get their information and share your information. Like when I, when I was in Bonn, and I just struck up conversations because you see people have their name tags. And so I met uh, these uh, women who are, work with the Japanese uh, Space Agency and to talk about the sort of satellites that they operate. And they do this jointly with the European Space Agency, as well as uh, Jet Propulsion Lab, about trying to identify greenhouse gas emissions and, and having that kind of remote detection down to the square meter of methane and CO2 emissions. I mean, what wonderful research is, is being done and just learning uh, about this just through talking with folks. I, I was able to talk with the one of the organizers of the Air Transport Action Group out of Geneva, and, and their uh, activities are to help airlines and, and airplane manufacturers have a reduced uh, footprint. And so blending in different feedstocks into to jet fuel to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and to see the kind of progress that they're making. And, you know, you could read a, a press release about this, but when you actually sit down and you have a conversation over tea or a cup of coffee or over dinner, it becomes something that is then very memorable. And I, I just want to encourage folks to start these conversations because these are the very conversations that kind of keep you going in the long run because there are other human beings in every corner of the earth people of conscience who are trying to make a difference. Well, you heard it here first. You need to become an extrovert for climate action. I love it. Jonathan, Ellie, thank you both for joining us and thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.